Ahead of the 27th session of the Conference of the Parties in November, Nigeria is struggling with unprecedented flooding and large-scale destruction, which shows the urgency for negotiations and climate investment that helps vulnerable countries build mitigation and adaptation against extreme weather events, which climate change can amplify. The devastating floods after months of heavy rainfall have swept through over 30 states. Communities, public infrastructures, and farmlands have been submerged as thousands of people flee to safer grants. Over 1.4 million people are estimated to have been affected, with about 90,000 homes destroyed. In the last episode, we looked at factors around flooding. Today, we'll be looking at the broader implication of the climate crisis and the path towards adaptation and sustainable development. What should be Nigeria's interest at COP27? Hello, welcome to the Crisis Room, a podcast from Human Angle. I am Mokhtel Abdullahi, standing in for Mariam Mustafa. In this podcast, we look at crisis trends across Nigeria and answer the tough questions around them. This week, I'm here with a guest, Dr. Habib Badagash, a climate and environment policy specialist and an associate with the Rocky Mountain Institute, where she focuses on the African Energy Program. Good day, Doctor. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Good afternoon, so, everyone. Welcome to the Crisis Room. What else do you want to tell us about your background before we begin the conversation? Uh, thank you for the introduction that you've given. Uh, maybe just to expand a bit on my expertise. As, as you said, I work for RMI, which is a nonprofit based in Colorado. Um, I work for the Africa Energy Program, and we're really advancing clean energy solutions, market-led clean energy solutions across the world. Um, in Nigeria, our... Uh, we, ha- we run several programs, but our priority now is the Energizing Agriculture Program that we're co-implementing with the Rural Electrification Agency, trying to drive energy agricultural solutions in rural communities, trying to improve the incomes of rural farmers and processors uh, so that they can access better markets and improve uh, their livelihoods. Um, in terms of my academic and research background, I have a PhD from Imperial College London in energy systems modeling, and my Really, research focuses thinking about the energy transition and what it means for developing countries, particularly Nigeria and Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm um, a chemical engineer by training. Um, and yeah, I think that's Well, <laughs> your portfolio is quite broad. And when you look at it, it's quite a combination of uh, adaptation and mitigation, the energy transition. And so, yeah, you kind of like the perfect fit uh, for our conversation today. Uh, as I earlier mentioned, really, when you look at it, the, the flood in Nigeria, I kind of like, brings a lot of conversation in terms of the climate crisis. And coincidentally, it's happening like weeks after the government had uh, launched the energy transition plan. So as we head towards COP27, what's your thought on what, uh, on the urgency uh, of COP27 uh, when considering what our, a lot of countries are facing, especially in Africa and uh, more specifically in Nigeria? Uh, what's your thought on COP27? I think, first of all, just reflecting on the floods that have been happening, I know there's been discuss, discussion about um, it's being caused by the release from the dam in Cameroon, but also the rains this season have been, I think, by consensus, significantly heavier than we expected and exacerbated a lot of the flooding that we've been seeing um, happen a lot more. So I think the first thing in terms of the mindset of going to COP27 is that Nigeria and Africa more broadly needs to abandon this perception that climate change is not an issue. 
um, climate change was always this referred to as a threat multiplier, mm-hmm. but we've seen that it's become a threat in itself in terms of the property it can destroy, the migration and refugee crisis it can potentially cause. So I think the approach to have is um, going with a mindset that this is a priority challenge that we need to address on the continent and within our countries through policy and, and other projects, uh, be it infrastructure or otherwise. That I think that mindset hasn't really settled in the, mind, in, like in the minds of our decision makers and our policy makers. And I think that's something that needs to change in terms of going to COP27. That being said, I think the COP27 should be a moment for Africa to really try and define its own way of addressing climate change. There's a Western perception of how to address climate change, which focuses a lot on mitigation. Okay, you expand your renewable energy generation sources, abandon fossil fuel resources, which I think is suitable to their context when you have an established, in, yeah. when established industries and established Boss. energy systems. I think for us, we need to start thinking about alternative pathways, perhaps how we can stage climate change mitigation alongside adaptation, mm-hmm. perhaps intensifying fossil fuel development in the next uh, decade or two, and then kind of transitioning the same way the West has. Um, this is something that has been controversial to say on the international stage, yeah. just because the West is promoting one messaging on of how to address climate change. But Africa is in such a dire, I think, economic uh, situation that it requires us to give ourselves the maximum amount of flexibility in terms of the solutions and the pathways that we're going to use to address COP20, to, to address um, the climate change challenge. And I have written in op-eds, um, some out, some not yet. But for me, the priority for COP27 is redefining that definition of equity. I think... Perfect. I think when you redefine it, so what uh, in specific, what should that look like? I think the way equity has been portrayed is so far focused on well, the West supports Africa with mm-hmm. meeting climate change adaptation or mitigation commitments through financing. But that framing, first of all, is misleading because, you know, a lot of those climate financing commitments don't come to bear. And second, it's, it's, it further promotes their own approach to addressing climate change, which is that everybody subscribe to a net zero transition yeah. pathway, do it on the same timeline that some of the other countries are doing it, uh, but we'll support you with some financing. Yeah. And, you know, we know that that climate finance question has not the commitment of $100 billion per year in yeah. climate finance developing countries has not been met. Yeah. Um, we've had a lot of usual aid projects being relabeled as climate finance. And now, you know, as we saw in the last COP, the African group of negotiators said, well, that $100 billion number is actually just it's small. A, it's small. It's manufactured, right? It was, it's just a vague number that we've chosen to fixate on for the last five, 10 years. Yeah. Um, it's like they, they quoted $700 billion. The truth is nobody probably knows what that number needs to be. But my issue with that framing is so far... The West has been able to dictate the type of financing Africa can yeah. access in terms of addressing climate change and has also been able to not dictate, but at least coerce African countries into subscribing to a certain type of climate change uh, plan. So you highlighted in terms of the costs 
so when we talk about climate investment, there's a huge cause that goes. And I think the energy transition, there was a conversation that over $400 billion uh, will be required. And then in terms of even achieving this year by 2060, they, I think they were talking about over a trillion uh, dollars. So it's huge and African countries can find that money. And, and you we made, I think one of the most important things that you said is about redefining what it is uh, we want to achieve and how our path towards achieving that is. And this goes back, this takes me back to uh, a piece that you recently wrote uh, in terms of uh, the project that you're running, uh, providing solar powered machinery uh, to drive productivity. And I think that's one good impact of how we can use our renewable energies to drive production, especially in rural areas. However, that project has, um, has uh, the farmers who were supposed to benefit from that project have not suffered because of this flooding. Uh, surprisingly, farmers in Nigeria in a mix, uh, you look at, um, it's either they're suffering from erratic rainfall or they're suffering from the impact from flooding. So which means that adaptation and finding ways to Improve that resilience is important, and I think that's part of what you mean by defining how we, uh, what kind of investment that we need. So, can you tell us more about that piece? Uh, or is yeah, of course. I think um, the origin of that piece is so because I have such a technical background, I'm very used to writing about climate change in a very academic sense, thinking yeah. about energy systems and transitions. And really, for me, it was reflecting on well, some of this focus that we have on mitigation right now. Is it valid given that so much of the country is vulnerable to existing climate change impacts? Yeah. And you see that, um, in fact, some of the mitigation solutions can't be implemented mm -hmm. because, you know, you have these extreme weather events can come and just preclude the possibility of, of putting a project in a certain community. As we've seen with some of the work that I do, you know, we're looking to do a solar, you know, in communities that already have solar mini grids, which has yeah. been co-funded by the World Bank and the African Development Bank, supporting them to get advanced processing equipment. And now all the farms are flooded. So it's pointless. The solar is pointless. The machines are pointless because you actually don't have the harvest that you're going to put yeah. in that machine. So climate change definitely is threatening the economic livelihoods. And just linking it to your conversation about the type of investment that we need yeah. and the energy transition plan. Um, I think first it's like when we discuss climate change, everybody just talks about decarbonization of energy systems automatic, automatically. Yeah, that's the assumptions. Everyone goes for, oh, go renewable, green. Uh, exactly. Everybody forgets everything else, forgets agriculture, yeah. forgets land use, yeah. and land use change, forgets uh, resilient infrastructure that is needed. Um, and we have really no planning around that. Everybody is just so focused on. I think that's what the NDC was supposed to cover the national determined contribution, uh, providing a framework of okay, these are the sectors that we need uh, to build resilience, you know, that in terms of the national greed, uh, farming, climate smart uh, agriculture. But I think there's a lot of gaps in the process. Yeah, I mean, Nigeria's first NDC was two pages. Mm hmm. 2017. Yeah, yeah. So two pages. So yeah. if you tell me you have a coherent climate transition plan in two pages. That's... Um, it, so what I saw from that plan is that I think they had taken the outcome of a PhD student, someone who was based at the Stockholm Environment Institute, using the LEAP model, which is this long-term emissions yeah. planning tool, um, to figure out, well, how do we decarbonize? Mm -hmm. I'm an energy system modeler by training. So I know that you can tell an energy system model anything and it will give you the, the feedback that you, need. that you need. I can say, okay, I want Nigeria to go net zero by 2030 oh. and tell me, okay, if you can produce $1 trillion today, 
you can like achieve that. you can build all the solar and then build all this uh, infrastructure yeah. and you'll meet net zero a lot of the exercises that we do in terms of planning are very detached from the reality on the yeah. ground um and it just goes back to my point on saying we're so fixated on following a certain approach to climate yeah. change pathways and as we've seen with some of the energy transition plan i've published a strong critique of the energy transition plan because challenging the framing why should a, the energy transition plan be framed around nigeria delivering net zero by 2050 mm-hmm. or 2060 mm-hmm. yes the modeling exercise may be valid and, and but the point is that all the results and scenarios and the plans being produced are directed towards achieving that and yeah. i'm yet to be convinced why we should be achieving net zero on the same timeline that the uk is yeah or any other country india asked for theirs to be 2070 some countries have stayed back from uh, committing to a date and when it comes to financing plans what that does is that excuse when you when you force it to say meet a climate change yeah. target excuse all your plans towards meeting a certain level of renewable energy infrastructure it forgets to consider whether those are financially viable those mm-hmm. are commercial projects that you can actually deliver on the ground i mean the energy transition plan advocating for hundreds of billions of dollars of investment in the next 30 years is there a precedent for that in Nigeria okay wow. if it requires changes to policy and the economy are those changes going to happen now they may happen in the future but will they happen in the next 10 years that Nigeria will become everybody's choice investment destination and have a miracle and develop like China in 20 yeah. years um so i think that's that's why i keep saying we need to redefine the definition of equity we need to consider what we have yeah. what resources we have available what projects are bankable mm-hmm. right now what can i attract investment for nigeria still attracts some investment for oil and gas infrastructure because yeah. it's geared towards export and yeah. somebody actually wants wants the product wants the product we need to have a similar thinking when we when it comes to building some of these transition plans they need to become more feasible and we need to see realistically what amount of resources we can mobilize to deliver this yeah. um and i think cop 27 needs to get to the heart of this about we've been so fixated on one type of pathway mm-hmm. to address climate change which is really just mitigation and going yeah. green and renewables is there another pathway that maybe focuses on utilizing existing fossil fuel resources to develop local industry improve livelihoods and then delay that transition to a green industry because we would have built the kind of economic prosperity that is so fundamental to yeah. adapting to climate change. That makes adaptation easier. Yeah, if, if there's going to be heat waves and heat stress, I want to be able to afford an AC. Yeah, or build my house in or the manner that my house in a better Yeah, location. and you need money to do that. Exactly. Exactly. I, so I, you actually ended up answering my follow-up question because uh we look at it in terms of climate finance, the climate diplomacy, all these are interlinked and we define your own reality based on what's on ground, uh where exactly you go in terms of your gas trans, gas as and I think this also end up with the conversation that the vice president had with uh Kerry, the US envoy on climate and uh, gas being Nigeria's transition. I think he also mentioned that when he went to the US. So it's a It's a lot of work ahead and what this flood in this year shows us is that 
as you have earlier highlighted that a lot of focus needs also goes into adaptation uh, uh, but there's a lot of okay so what exactly should be at the front is it adaptation or mitigation or should the two go together but yeah you made a lot of sense in the sense that um, we could build up existing systems to make the transition easier for people and so Europe is finding it easy sorry uh, Europe is finding it easy because they have attained this level of development that makes okay uh, moving to uh, EV very easy but here where we still don't have power what are you talking about charging uh, cars so which means that you probably powering a generator use a generator to charge an, an EV car so what have you achieved yeah. So part of the conversation will be uh, at the COP27 will be about African countries asking for funding, uh, either in terms of grant or development organization or loaning opportunities. And uh, I think here internally, we also talked, we, Nigeria had also like this something around the green bonds. And there's a lot of conversation around if the green bonds was ever successful or not. Uh, I think, I think that, uh, that's another conversation. Uh, so yeah, just to end up, uh, do you think that we should go with the polluter pace principles, like having the developing countries provide more financial support? I think the the polluter pace principle, yes. I mean, to the, to the extent that we can advocate for as much climate finance coming into these countries, that's absolutely fine. Um, my issue with that is, first of all, there isn't the Paris Agreement or the UNFCCC there isn't a framework for penalizing anybody that doesn't meet a certain commitment. Like the US or any country can say, the Western bloc can be like, we're going to provide $100 billion, but they haven't and there's mm-hmm. no penalty. I think approaching those talks with this mindset that we're going to force concessions from them is wrong because Africa does not really have the power to actually force those concessions out of the West. That's why I said we need to also figure out how to, we need to build transition pathways with resources that we have that we can utilize and also advocate that they at least expose some of the hypocrisy to show that, well, some of these restrictions you're applying on gas financing, for example, or fossil fuel finance are actually inequitable towards Africa. Maybe that's equitable Within the Western context, like, okay, I'm not going to fund new oil and gas projects for a Western country that Mm. has alternatives to go solar. But for the EU and and some EU countries and and the US to sign a pact saying they're not going to use any public financing to invest in any fossil fuel projects abroad is preventing developing countries like Nigeria from being able to access any financing to build gas projects that could be hugely uh, prosperous for the country. So I think in terms of the approach there, it's trying to almost show that you're willing, you're not going to go for this narrative where I'm waiting for you to allow me to do something. Mm-hmm. Okay, I need. Okay, yes, of course, we need international investment. Um, but we've seen that from the Western perspective, energy security is priority. I think the war against Ukraine has exposed that, that, you know, they were all renewables, 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 and then gas got really expensive, and yeah. then some people are burning coal or, you know, Olaf Scholz is now in Senegal saying they're going to encourage them to, they, they want more gas yeah. coming from Africa because they're looking for alternative supplies. So it can't just be that the geopolitical context in the West gets to dictate how oh. Africa can develop. Yeah. That's the problem. And that's kind of the paradigm that was stuck in. 
that oh now we can do the trans-saharan pipeline because the eu needs gas so it's events outside that is shaping what the decisions that we make internally and we need to figure out a plan that works for us absolutely and the, and the resources that we can mobilize and i think going to cop 27 african countries i know that they're forming a common position on yeah. energy the african union is but that needs to also translate into policy and decisions yeah. you can't have all these countries making side deals with the us yeah. and this and that um uh it has to show that we do need that flexibility in yeah. able to develop and if you want us to go across a certain pathway you're really really going to have to commit a lot of resources to it the way they've committed 8.5 billion dollars to support south africa yeah. through the just energy transition partnership it really has to be worth our while to do something that given the status quo is probably not the optimal decision for us to make hmm. doctor it's quite a, a lot of uh, the conversation quite a lot of moving parts and uh, a lot of things around why we need to define our path and what the transition should look like for us and what adaptation and mitigation looks like for us thank you for coming uh, and and we look forward to having you in future uh, episodes of the crisis stream Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. This is an episode of uh, Human Angle Crisis Zoom. Join us in two weeks for another episode. Uh, the producer is Antonia Semota. The executive producer is Ahmed Sakira. <laughs>